Good evening, church family. So glad you're here. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verse 20. We'll be looking at verse 20 to the end of the chapter in verse 33. And that will be in your pew Bibles at page 527. You know, as you're turning there, Proverbs, as well as all of wisdom literature, really, are answering two uh, major questions. First, what type of world is it that we're living in? Like, what are the dynamics of it, the properties, everything about it? What, what kind of world are we living in? And secondly, what does it look like to live well in that world? Proverbs and most of wisdom literature are answering those questions. Now, as you know, and everybody knows, Proverbs is most known for those short, pithy, memorable statements that speak into various aspects of our life. That begins really in chapter 10, and that's true. But Bible wisdom, biblical wisdom, what we're learning in chapters 1 through 9 is that God-breathed wisdom is much bigger than just advice. It's much more cosmic than that. In fact, the Hebrew word for it, the concept of it, chokmah, is seen as the very principle in creation issuing from God's mind. That is, God designed everything for a reason. He made it. He designed this world to essentially work properly. He designed us to work properly. And, and there's a rhyme of reason to everything. He created the world in wisdom. Now, unfortunately, as we know, our Bible's in Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam. Since then, man has rejected the wisdom of God and has started pursuing the wisdom of the world. They have gone their own way. You might call that the way of folly, which Proverbs picks up on. And as you know, that hasn't gone very well. You know, the world's broken. You're broken. I'm broken. Our relationships are broken. The world is turned upside down. All right, that's where we are. So what Proverbs does, first off, it tells us what went wrong. But then it shows us how once again to live well in a world that is created and ruled by Yahweh. And it says in order for us to do that, the starting place, as Brian spoke at that first week of our our studies together, is with the fear of the Lord, that we believe him and that we submit to his word and his ways. Now, in our passage, starting in verse 20, Solomon uses something called personification to get that across. He's putting hands and feet to this to this concept. He personifies it as this wise woman standing in the middle of the street, shouting at civilization around us, shouting at everybody, all of those who have rejected the wisdom of the Lord. Now, this is not, as you know, an actual appearance of the Lord himself. It's not some pre-incarnate Christ, but rather it's this poetic, vivid picture that Solomon gives us to capture our hearts and our minds so that we might begin to hear what God is saying to us. And friends, if you've read ahead, (laughs) the end of chapter one is a doozy. God has a word for us and it's of the utmost importance. It is the matter of life and death. So by God's grace, let's read it together. Starting in verse 20, God's word says, wisdom cries aloud in the street In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I've called and you've refused to listen, I've stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity 
I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill on their own devices for the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Church family, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for tonight. Uh, We're grateful for your word and we're grateful for your table. We pray that you would settle our hearts that you would cause us to see the beauty and the power and the necessity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would cause us all to believe him and rest in him all the more deeply. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's really appropriate and truly providential that we come to this passage at the beginning of the Lenten season. Lent, as you know, is an opportunity in the church calendar year where we are invited to keep close company with the Lord Jesus Christ And journey with him on the road to the cross of Good Friday and the empty tomb of Easter Sunday. But on the way there, we are forced to deal with and wrestle with uncomfortable realities that we probably normally wouldn't think about. The reality of our own sin, our own folly, and the prospect of death that lays before us all. I think that what Lady Wisdom is calling us to do here. Because as we've seen so far, there's only two ways of living. There's no middle way. There's no third way. There's only two ways of living. There's the way of wisdom, which leads to the way of life. And the way of wisdom, like the old hymn says, essentially, wealth and honor I disdain, earthly comforts, Lord, are in vain. They can never satisfy. Give me Christ or else I die. That is essentially the way of wisdom that leads to the way of life, that leads to life. But that other route, that other way is the way of folly. The way that rejects the wisdom of the Lord for the wisdom of this world. And unfortunately, there are a whole lot of people along that path in the world and even in the church. Those who think they're wise but just aren't. Those who think they have life down but it's really just falling out of their fingers. There's this giant chasm between what ought to be and what is in their hearts. And they're filling that space with the things of this world. And that just leads to destruction. I think that's why Lady Wisdom here paints the picture of folly so vividly for us. So that we might see it for what it is, that we may no longer be allured by the wisdom of this world. Ultimately, though, so that we develop a posture of King David from Psalm 139 who says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. I think that's why we have this picture. So that we return to the Lord and say, search me and know my thoughts and lead me in the way of everlasting. So brothers and sisters, with that posture of humility, that posture of King David, let's look at this portrait that Lady Wisdom gives us for the wisdom of the world, which is very much the way of folly. First off, she gives us the characteristics of folly. In verses 22 through 23, we'll see three words that describe the foolish person. Simple, scoffers and fools. 
three different words that progress from one degree to another that also express the notion not only of aimlessly living along the pathway of life, but also a willful rebellion on the way. Simple, scoffers, and fools. I want us to focus on that word simple really quickly because that word simple or even the word fool, they have negative connotations. You know, we've heard people use that or maybe even describe us that way um, in very harmful and hurtful ways. But we see those words in the Bible. It's not talking about anyone's intellectual ability. That's not what those words are describing. Rather, it's describing someone's moral perversity. And that word simple in particular, that word simple shows us that it's entirely possible Um, you don't really have to hate the word of God. You don't have to hate the wisdom of God to miss out on the wisdom of God. You just have to be okay with where you are and who you are. There's a general unseriousness about God's word and what it says about us, what it says about things eternal and the eternal realities that lay before us. That's what the simple one is, that they're just okay with how things are. Now, by God's grace, I think it's that category of folk that the lady of wisdom is actually addressing. The, the, the simple ones who love being simple. I think it's those folks who lady wisdom is addressing. And the reason is, is because they're not yet hardened in heart like those that are the scoffers or, or the fools. I mean, they're, they're walking around aimlessly in life. They're not taking anything seriously, the things eternal, the things of the Lord, things to come. They're not, they're not caring about those things, but they haven't settled yet. They haven't decided. They're, they're compromising, but they're just kind of floundering around. By God's grace, I believe it's those that wisdom is addressing. He's, she's addressing everybody, but it's particularly those that she's addressing. Why? To wake them from their stupor. To snap them back into reality, to get the sleep out of their eyes. And in order to do that, she first describes the characteristics of what folly is. There's three things. First off, those who are on the pathway of folly refuse to listen. Verses 24 through 25. Lady Wisdom says, you refuse to listen when I called. You ignored all my counsel. Time and time again, Proverbs presents this way of folly as someone metaphorically who's walking along the pathway of life with their fingers in their ears. That in spite of whomever God has placed in their life, a godly parent, spouse, best friend, mentor, pastor, youth leader, and in spite of whatever they say, they refuse their advice, they dismiss their claims, walking along the road of ignorance, always knowing better, always having an excuse with their fingers in their ears. Now, those are the actions of a toddler. You know, we've all, most of us have had toddlers at some point and they do that. It never feels good when they do that and walk away from you. But that's not who Solomon's addressing here. That's not who Lady Wisdom's addressing. She's addressing grownups who ought to know better, but don't because they've had their fingers in their ear. And so here's Lady Wisdom and saying, how long are you going to live that way? How many more sermons do you need to hear? How many more godly people do I need to put in your life? to talk to you before you take those fingers out of your ear and start taking my word, my wisdom seriously. So the first characteristic on those on the road to folly are those who refuse to listen. Secondly, the foolish man resists rebuke or discipline. If you go back to verse seven, which Brian again spoke on that first week, Solomon says in verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's not talking about math. 
You know, you get instructed. And that's not what that's talking about. Another Hebrew word for instruction is discipline. So the foolish person despises wisdom and despises discipline. We see that in verse 25 in our passage. The fool will have none of my reproof. Then later in chapter 15, verse 5, the foolish person despises his father's discipline. So what's that describing? That's describing a fool who slams the proverbial door shut in the face of whoever's trying to speak truth into their life. Now, that does not mean that anybody that has something to say to you is worth listening to. We've already said there's a lot of people who think they're wise but just aren't, okay? But we do know in our hearts that when someone's speaking truth to our heart for the sake of our heart, we know when that's taking place. In the wisdom of Solomon, Lady Wisdom says we are fools, fools if we reject that. Because God in his grace puts people in our lives to help us see truth when we're blind to truth so that we might respond to truth. Why? Because God is good. He wants us to to grow in spiritual maturity. He wants us to know how this world works. He wants us to flourish as his people, as his creation, the apex of his creation. He wants us to live lives that are pleasing and glorifying to him. And sometimes we need discipline, even rebuke to get there. The foolish person is the one who rejects that. No one likes rebuke. I don't like it. I don't like discipline. It hurts. I mean, we're not masochists. We're not looking to be rebuked or disciplined. It's painful. Wisdom is dangerous in that way. But what Solomon is saying here, this is a good danger. This is a redemptive pain, actually. This is the pain of the refiner's fire where our gold is preserved, but the impurities of our sin, the impurities of our folly is burnt off. And then, of course, we know that the reason that God allows this to happen, according to our brother in Hebrews, is because our father loves us as his children. But to keep our fingers in our ear, to ignore that, we might spare ourselves the hurt of the refiner's fire, but, but to ignore the godly words of those whom God has put in our life to ignore the word of God itself. That that's the, that's the danger of poison. That that's the pain that leads to destruction to say that I will have none of it. I know better. And lady wisdom says, how long are you going to live that way? The third and final characteristic is the one who rejects the Lord, which is, of course, the foundation of those two previous characteristics. Solomon says in verse 29, all of this is so because they have hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, which is just another way of saying they rejected the Lord. It's really interesting. We can talk to anybody in our social circles, you know, about really anything, and we'll get a listening ear. You know, we could say that we believe in whatever the latest political conspiracy theory is or whatever the latest cultural ideology is. We can even say, you know, we're being invaded by Martians. They're coming to earth on these balloons and, and people will listen to you. You know, that's a pretty good idea. Barnard thought about that. You are a wise man. But as soon as we say there is a God who designed this place and made me and made you and reveals himself perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will look at us with scorn. The Bible tells us there will be people who agree with our politics. There are people who might even be sympathetic with our religion. 
but as soon as we say there's a God to whom they are accountable, who is sovereign over all things, they will reject you because they have rejected the Lord. They will laugh at the whole concept of bowing a knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will laugh at the need to make amends for sin. They will laugh at you because they have rejected the Lord. Now, here's the thing. It would be very easy for us as the church, right, to take up the posture of lady wisdom and shake our heads at all the fools out there, wagging our fingers. Oh, simple ones, why do you enjoy being simple? And there's a lot of folks in the church who do that and only that. So I think we really need to take a page out of old Bill Shakespeare's book, who's actually just quoting Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26, or rather 26, verse 12. Remember, it is the fool who thinks he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. That is, we must remember, yes, Lady Wisdom is speaking to everyone, but, but Solomon is writing to the people of God to wake us up from our stupor. And isn't it true when we take this posture of King David, search me, O God, we see the seeds of folly in our own heart. And the reality is we should be thankful for that because secondly, Lady Wisdom shows us the consequences of folly. Now just think about this. If God did design the world in a certain way, for it to tick in a certain way, for there to be a rhyme and reason, to color outside the the design of God's world, that will, of course, invite inevitable temporal consequences. The Bible says as much. He said, and if following this way of folly, it leads to failures in every area of life, relationships, work, sexuality, spirituality, everything. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, folly leads to futility. A man's folly brings his way to ruin. And even when it seems like folly is getting away with it, like they're benefiting from their folliness, we know from Ecclesiastes, another book of wisdom, that there will come a point in every man's life when they throw up their hands in the air and they will say, it's been an all vanity. I was wrong and you were right. And the reason that's the case is because it's impossible to sin and not experience the suffering and the consequences of it. But here's the deal. In God's economy, even that is a grace, those temporal consequences. It's a mercy that God uses in our life so that we might be spared from the even worse consequences. We might be saying, what's worse than the temporal consequences? Well, they tell us what's worse than temporal consequences is this reality. That persistent folly leads to eternal ruin. Listen to these latter verses in this chapter. Verse 26, God says, he will mock the mockers and laugh when the storm of judgment comes. It's hard for me to study. It's hard for me to preach. It's hard for me to read it. But when, when it says that God is laughing, it's not a giggly laugh. He's not taking pleasure in the demise of people. We have to understand that this is the laughter of heaven that rejoices at the defeat of evil, that rejoices when this upside down world turns right side back up again, when righteousness outs wickedness. And Lady Solomon says that word, Lady Solomon, Lady Wisdom says that word is coming. That time is coming and judgment's coming with it. And what will this judgment look like? Well, it's not a hammer over their head. It's not when you fail, but it's when we finally get what we've turned away from the Lord for. Verse 31, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. That's the poison. There will become a time when God finally hands people over to their sin. 
The hardness of heart inherits itself. This is what C.S. Lewis says. At the end, there will only be two groups of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and hear from him, well done, my good and faithful servant. And those people to whom God says, thy will be done. And those who had previously laughed at the Lord Jesus Christ, mocked his word, mocked his wisdom, will hear the laughter of heaven. I can't think of anything worse, anything more tragic than that Philippians 2 passage of when someone is finally awoken from their stupor on the day to come, when everyone bows a knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and declares him as Lord, but also to say in your heart, I was wrong. And they were right. This passage tells us there will be a whole lot of people that hear the gospel. A whole lot of people who have a missionary come to them. A whole lot of people who who have heard a word from their parent or from a friend or from a mentor or from their youth pastor. And still willfully go along that road of ignorance. But Proverbs 1 tells us there will come a day where the spirit of the God quits knocking at their door. That's foolishness. And Jesus awakens, Jesus, who is, who is wisdom incarnate, awakens us to that same reality. In the rich young fool, or rather the parable of the rich fool, the one who did it his own way and put his trust in himself, in his riches, in his wisdom, in this world, that God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the thing that you've prepared for, all these things, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus does not say those things to be mean to us. But he says those things that we might be awakened from our stupor and stop loving being simple. This passage is so hard. But I'm so thankful for it. Because it does get us to grapple with the realities of our own heart. And to sift through the seeds in our own heart. Is folly there? Search me, O God. It forces us to deal with the reality of death. But I love this passage so much because it's not ultimately about us or the gravity of our own sin, but it's about the God who loves us enough to shout at us. About the God who is powerful enough to even take the greatest fool and make him spiritually wise. And that's what we see lastly, the cure of folly. For all of us who've said that I'm a fool, who all of us who are thinking that I've wasted years of my life, what am I going to do? God says to you in verse 23, turn to me. That's it. He doesn't say jump through this hoop, jump through that hoop, go back and do this or that. He says, turn. Friends, that is the most important word in talking and describing the gift of repentance in the Bible. Turn. It is not for perfect people but it's rather a grace unto life for those who know they're not perfect, for those who know they're not wise, for those who have made a complete wreck of their life and because of it, stop and going the way in which they were going and turn. doesn't matter how long you've been going down the road of folly. You simply turn back to the God who has his arms wide open for you and you say, I'm wrong and you're right. Lord, have mercy upon me. And in that moment, you feel the weight of folly that's been dragging you down just slip off your back. And you know that God in his grace is going to begin to restore the years the locusts have eaten. That's the gift. 
the, the cure for folly is repentance, where we take all of these things, where, where we actually start doing what we've been rejecting. We, we, we fear the Lord. We believe who he is. We believe that he loves us, that he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that even his discipline is meant for our good, that we believe that he's perfectly revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we go to him with all of our baggage, with all of our stuff, and we drop it down in his feet. We throw ourselves into his mercy lap. You are Lord. You are the sinner's savior. You are the fool's rescuer. And that's when he begins to work. For all of those of us that are saying, I want to do that. I can't do that. I'm a big failure. I know that I'm going to fail again. What does God say? He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit to you. Don't you worry. I know your need. I know everything about you. I I rose. I I died for your sin. I died for your guilt. I I rose in power, rose in life to give you power. Just trust me and come to me and I will make you dwell secured. Which again is something else that Jesus says in Matthew 7. Whoever hears my word and does it is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And even when that storm comes, that house will not fall. Jesus says, no matter where you've been or how long you've been in the far country, turn to me and I'll make you do all secure. It reminds me of another parable that Jesus gave us, the prodigal son, which I think perfectly shows us the love the father has for foolish people. You remember the parable, two sons, the younger son asks his father, demands from his father, give me all that's coming to me. He takes it and goes off and spends it and a reckless lifestyle. And at the end of the day, when he is completely destitute, something else happens. A famine comes to that far off country in which he was wandering and he finds himself in desperate need. So desperate, in fact, he longs to be fed with the pigs and slop. And in that slop of his own making, he starts getting wise. And he says to himself, I've been a fool. So I'm gonna rise up and go back to my father, return to my father, And say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So that's exactly what he did. He rose up. He returned to his father. But he didn't make it. Because his father first saw him. And he ran down the road, the father. And he fell on his neck and kissed him all over. And his fool of a son, you know, he'd been rehearsing. So he got up and gave his speech, but he didn't get through it because his father said, stop it. Go kill the fatty calf. Bring my son a robe. We're about to celebrate. And I'm sure his son was confused, but his father celebrated him because he says, what did he say? My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And that's exactly what he says to anyone and everyone who turns to him. That is the hope of Proverbs 1. That is the message of that table. The God who says, turn to me, to simple ones, to scoffers and fools. And all who do, it will cause you to dwell secure forever and ever. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would search us and that you would know our hearts, that you would try us and know our thoughts. And that you would see if there's any grievous way in us. That by your love and grace, we may stop in the ways that we were going and turn to you, the one who has your arms wide open for us. Overwhelm us with the love of Christ.
and enable us to live and follow you now and forever. In Christ we pray. Amen.